morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to read verses 21 through 23 in a moment. That's Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Uh, but before we read, I want to kind of catch us up into what we're doing. We are trying to summarize a large portion of the Bible going all the way from Genesis to Daniel, which is the next book that we're going to cover together on Sunday morning. And we spent three weeks looking through the book of Genesis and trying to uh, make sure we set a good foundation for all of the story and chronology to come. And the purpose of doing this is I hold to the belief, and indeed uh, all conservative Bible scholars hold to the uh, belief, that the Bible is one cohesive story from front cover to back. And yet, uh, we could be forgiven if uh, we remember a bunch of stories from the Bible and struggle to line them up into a cohesive way. So what we're doing is we're trying to not only look at a, a bunch of Bible stories to summarize the 850 chapters from Genesis to Daniel, but we're trying to make sure that we understand how these stories that we're looking at flow into one cohesive narrative. And so we have five introductory stories in the book of Genesis, and these stories kind of set the stage for the world and, and, and how we recognize it today. We have Adam and Eve, which explain to us uh, the fall and, and mankind and, and uh, how evil came to be. The Cain and Abel uh, show us God's desire to maintain some sort of fellowship with broken sinners, and yet the pervasiveness of sin apparent uh, in uh, Cain's murder of Abel. And then we have the story of uh, the flood and God's judgment of this pervasive evil. And uh, then we have the story of the Tower of Babel, which covers the dispersion and the separation of peoples and cultures and, and begins to give us an idea of the role that idolatry will play in uh, the rebellion against God. So uh, we, we've set the stage now, and then last week we spent a lot of time looking at Abraham. We looked at Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, the covenant promise that God made with Abraham, that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we know this is a callback to the man promised in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sin, and part of the judgment poured out against Satan, is that there will be a man called in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, which is a foreshadowing of the virgin birth. Uh, otherwise, uh, we would expect to see the seed of a man. But instead, this promised man in Genesis 3 is called the seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head, crush Satan's head, even as uh, Satan or the serpent himself bruises or wounds the, the heel, as it is in the text, because we're using the serpent motif and snakes would bite at a person's foot or heel. So there will there'll come a man whom Satan himself will attack and wound, and, and of course that's what happens on the cross. But in that attacking, that wounding of this coming man that God is promising at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3, uh, Satan himself will be crushed, and, and that's exactly what the cross does. The cross is a wounding of the Son of God, but it's not an execution of God's Son in the sense that Jesus uh, rises from the grave, uh, has victory over death, and accomplishes the redemption of Adam and Eve, which is what Satan is trying to, to ruin in uh, the Garden of Eden in the first place. Uh, so there's this prophesied man, and then God identifies Abraham after the flood, and we might be, you know, uh, uh, well... Uh, um, established and wondering, uh, why in the world would God choose Abraham? I mean, why, why is the Bible focusing on this man? There, there are all kinds of people uh, all over the, the earth at this point in time, uh, and yet the Bible doesn't take us to South America or to North America or to Australia or 
or Eastern Asia. It takes us to the Middle East where this man is and, and he's called Abraham. And it doesn't appear to be because of his righteousness or his righteous deeds. Uh, indeed, there are some pretty seedy stories about Abraham, but, but God chooses this man and makes a, a one-sided covenant with him. Uh, this one-sided covenant is demonstrated, and we saw this last week, and in God walking this trail of blood. He makes this blood covenant, promising Abraham that he will have offspring, and that in his offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed. Which is a pretty remarkable promise, if we're being honest. I mean, uh, I, I love my children, I think they're great, but I don't expect uh, all the families of the earth to be blessed in my offspring. I mean, it would be great if, if a number of families in our local community were blessed by my children in some way, shape, or form. To make a promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed in your offspring is an amazing promise that God's making uh, to Abram. And then we go through Abram's life, and, and there are certain other stories that we focused on last week in summarizing. For instance, Abraham himself is waiting on a promised son. And in Genesis 17, he has the audacity to, to say to God, Lord, what will you give me? And that this man, Eliezer of Damascus, the servant in my house, stands to inherit everything that I own. Now, God has promised Abraham a son and offspring and lineage, and yet uh, Abraham's getting up there in age. Sarah, his wife, is getting up there in age, and they don't have a son, and God wants to uh, reward Abraham, or, or God is telling him, I am your exceedingly great reward, uh, your, your shield and your reward. And Abraham says, Lord, what will you give me? What reward could you possibly give me, seeing that I don't have this promised son? And, uh, and so we get the picture that, well, Abraham is waiting for a promised son. Adam and Eve and all of creation is waiting for the promised son of Genesis 3. And there's a lot of similarities here. There's a lot of overlap. So God promises Isaac this son to Abraham. And uh, he even says when he's born, you'll name him Isaac. And of course, Abraham has a, a son and, and names him Isaac. So the promised son that Abraham has waited on as the fulfillment of all that God has made covenant with him over uh, finally arrives. And then in, in Genesis 22, we get this story where uh, God uh, tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, whom he loves, Isaac. So th think about the way God calls that out. He says, take now your son. Then he rubs the salt in the wound. Take now your son, your only son, he says. And then he says, whom you love. And then he calls him by name Isaac. So the Lord in this command to Abraham in Genesis 21 is really emphasizing the special relationship that Abraham has with his son, Isaac. He says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac and go to the land which I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice there. And God leads him to the land of Moriah, the land that will one day be uh, where Jerusalem is established and uh, where another promised son, the, the promised son from Genesis 3, Jesus, will be crucified. And God shows him a hill, and we don't know which hill, which hill it is, which mountain it is. It wouldn't surprise me at all since God had a specific hill in mind, and it's clear the symbolism that he's using here. It wouldn't surprise me at all if when I get to heaven I find out that the, the hill that God showed Abraham uh, and said, here, offer Isaac on this hill, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that is Golgotha, the hill that, uh, you know, a thousand years, two thousand years in the future that Jesus himself will be offered on. But, but he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the land of Moriah and offer him on a hill that I will show you. Now the New Testament tells us that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. 
So, uh, and in another place we're told that Abraham believed God's promise about the coming of Isaac and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham is not a righteous man. Um, Abraham is a sinner. And like I said, there are some very seedy stories about Abraham in the Bible. But Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And here we see in this offering of his son Isaac that Abraham believes God. And he believes even that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And he goes to this hill and he, he takes Isaac up there. Isaac, a young man at this point in time. And he raises the knife to slay this promised son, his only son, whom he loves, Isaac. And as he goes to slay him, there's a voice. And the voice says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. And as he turns to see the voice of who's speaking to him, there is caught a male adult sheep. It's called a ram, but it's a sheep. It's not a lamb. It's not a baby. It's an adult. Uh, and, and it's a sheep, and it's a male, and he's caught, uh, he's caught uh, by his head in the thickets or in the thorns. And, and you can see the symbolism of Jesus in that this male adult sheep crowned with thorns is the substitute for Isaac and the sacrifice that Abraham's required to make. And uh, and the voice of the, of the Lord speaking from the direction of this, saying, here is my true intention. My true intention, God's true intention, is to sacrifice His only Son, whom He loves, Jesus. And indeed, you hear the voice of the transfiguration of God saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son whom I love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And here we have Jesus crowned with thorns, caught in uh, the judgment of God as a substitute for our sin. And Isaac is spared when, where Christ is not. And this is all in the book of Genesis. This is all in the opening chapters. And so God is using this, this, this symbolism of this promised son that, that would come to Isaac to foreshadow what he will do in Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God makes with Abraham that in your offspring, in your lineage, will come a man in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that is Jesus on the cross. Jesus did not die merely for the Jews. He died for all who believe. Uh, it doesn't matter what, what race. It doesn't matter what gender. It doesn't matter what, what ec economical status. It doesn't matter where you're at in the world. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And all of the New Testament is a reflection of God's promises being extended to all of the non-Jewish people. Yes, it is a Jewish Messiah. Yes, this is a Messiah from the tribe and the lineage of Abraham, and, and yet uh, this extension of, of the blessing of God to all the families of the earth was promised all the way back in the book of Genesis. So time goes on. Now Abraham uh, has grandchildren through Isaac, uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau rejects the promise of God, so God bestows his promises on, on Jacob. Jacob, whom he later renames Israel, which means to wrestle with God, which in a dream, that's exactly what Jacob does. He wrestles with God, which again is metaphorical and symbolic for the wrestling with God that Israel uh, will do in all of the chapters in the books of the Bible to come. Uh, God is going to choose Israel as a nation, the descendants of this man Jacob, who's renamed Israel. And, and when God chooses fallen sinners to be in fellowship with, it is going to be a struggle. It is going to be, there's going to be wrestling because we are not faithful. 
even when God is. So he chooses Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Um, these are the 12 tribes of Israel, although we could spend a lot of time talking about how they become the tribes of Israel. There's some, uh, some uh, uh, mixing around of the variables in there, but he has 12 sons. One of those sons is Joseph, and we know Joseph in the coat of many colors, and his brothers are jealous, and they sell him into slavery, into, into Egypt, and, and they think he's done when in reality God is using Joseph in Egypt to prepare all the land for a large famine that's coming. There's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And, and Egypt is greatly enriched because they save for these seven years of famine. It, it's almost like having having a foreknowledge of what's going to happen in the stock market, right? If you could invest in, the, in something that's relatively cheap now, knowing that in seven years it's going to be the most valuable commodity in the world, then you'd be a very wealthy person. God enriches Pharaoh in this way and that through Joseph, uh, he explains exactly what's going to happen. And so Israel invests, Israel stores grain, sorry, Egypt invests and Egypt stores grain up. And lo and behold, when the famine comes, here are Joseph's brothers, the sons of Israel coming and saying, hey, take our money and take our profit so that we can buy grain. Because if we don't have grain, our livestock is going to die. Our, our wealth is going to, to evaporate. Our people are going to starve. And so we're willing to pay exorbitant amounts of money for grain. And so they make this trip, and and through a series of, uh, of of plots and twists, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and they realize, oh my goodness, this this brother whom we severely wronged, whom we whom we abused and sold into the slavery all these years ago, he's a grown man now, and he has family, and he has sons, and he's 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 profitable, and actually he's he's in charge economically as a steward of Egypt during this fantastic time, and God uses Joseph to provide for Israel and he relocates Israel which is very large you know these these sons are not little boys these the the tribes of Israel the sons of Israel are not little children anymore. Uh, they are, uh, many of them, full grown with families and children and grandsons and little ones, extended households of their own. And God relocates them all into Egypt and the land of Goshen. The Bible actually says that, that the Egyptians themselves sold themselves into Pharaoh. Uh, so the, really, Pharaoh takes ownership of all the, the citizens of Egypt by providing them grain during this famine. But Israel itself would be the free people. They are, they are given the land of Goshen, and uh, Joseph uh, provides for them. And yet, um, uh, many years later, it's the, 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 the tides have turned. 400 years later, it's Israel that has become the enslaved group, and it's, it's the Egyptians who are the free people. But that's not initially how it was when Israel migrates to the land of Goshen. Uh, well, uh, time passes, and at the close of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 49, we see the blessing of, of, of Israel, of uh, Jacob, to his sons. And he blesses his first three sons, and you can read that for yourself in Genesis chapter 49. And after the blessing of his first three sons, he comes to the fourth son, Judah. Now, Judah is not a remarkable figure. Uh, he is uh, himself a man with a colored, a man with a checkered past, and yet to Judah... Uh, Jacob says, the scepter will not depart from you. All the peoples will bow down and obey you. They will worship you. The scepter, the ruling scepter, belongs to you. He calls Judah a lion's whelp, a lion. Uh, so uh, there are symbols of royalty here. And he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh is a Hebrew word, untranslated in uh, our English Bibles. In Hebrew, it means to whom it belongs. So what, what Jacob is promising Judah here, uh, prophetically, uh, 
is he's, he's, he's giving Judah a prophecy. He's giving us a prophecy that says, um, the scepter will not depart from Judah, from the tribe of Judah, until uh, the one to whom the scepter belongs uh, comes. And, and to that man, to the one to whom the scepter belongs, will be the obedience of all peoples. And we talked about how that word people is plural, all nations, all peoples. And so here we find at the very end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, we have the promise of a great king, a king of kings, uh, who the ultimate scepter uh, that all the previous kings of Judah will, will bear, the ultimate scepter belongs to this king of kings. And we went to Ezekiel. And we saw when the scepter uh, sort of departs from, from the tribe of Judah. We saw Ezekiel, uh, in I believe it's Ezekiel 21, uh, prophesying, take off the crown, take off the crown, no more, no more, no more, until he comes to whom I will give it to. So there is this, this uh, hint all the way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3 of this man, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent, of this offspring of Abraham who will bless all the peoples of the earth, this this son that will uh, stand in substitute uh, for sinners in Genesis chapter 21. And in Genesis chapter 49, uh, this one from the tribe and lineage of Judah to whom the ruling scepter belongs and to him will be the obedience of all people. So we are telling one story, the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob, story of Joseph, the reason the Israelites are in Egypt. This is not, these are not random stories following a Semitic people group in, in the Middle East. This is a specific story, and it's about the man promise in Genesis chapter 3. That man is uh, Jesus. So now let's read in Exodus chapter 4. Now, we know lots about the story of Exodus. There have been movies. Yul Brenner and the Ten Commandments. Uh, there, uh, Disney did a movie, I think, called The Prince of Egypt. And what I remember from the movie The Prince of Egypt is this little cradle with a, a little baby Moses in it kind of dancing on the Nile River as crocodiles almost chomp it down. And, and I remember thinking, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. Is that what it was really like? Turns out it was not. Um, we know that after 400 years in, in, in Egypt, so 400 years after the time, of Joseph and uh, his brothers and settling in the land of Goshen. Uh, Israel has been very prosperous, which makes sense because they're given land, they're given, um, they're given an inheritance, they're given all of the building blocks that you need for prosperity, while the rest of Egypt and the known world are selling themselves into service to Pharaoh in order to survive the seven years of famine. Israel prospers and, and they multiply uh, so greatly that there comes a Pharaoh who sees them as a threat. And so this is the story where he orders all of the little newborn babies killed. I hope that a great many of those babies were spared. We're told that the Hebrew midwives spared a great number of them. And then uh, Pharaoh starts to, to order the execution of them. And we're told about one particular child whose mother, contrary to the movies, does not put him in a basket and send him roaring down the, the Grand Rapid Nile uh, River. But instead, she places him very strategically on the edge of the Nile in the reeds. You know, the reeds are keeping this basket from from uh, 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 going down the Nile and floating away into oblivion where surely the baby uh, would die. But she, she places him uh, there in the reeds and where strategically where Pharaoh's daughter bathed. And uh, cer certainly uh, it came to pass that Pharaoh's daughter comes and sees the baby and, 
and takes the baby into her house. And uh, through a nursing arrangement, Moses's mother uh, stays in contact with her son. So uh, I don't know that Moses was actually raised as a prince of Egypt, so to speak, but he was certainly raised as a very privileged uh, man because he was raised uh, by Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's house. So he was educated. He was he was uh, um, raised with all the, the blessings that if you were a Hebrew boy at that point in time, you surely uh, would not have had since this was a time of hard labor uh, from, the, from the Pharaohs. So he's raised in the house. He grows up. And we find at 40 years old, uh, Moses gets into a conflict with an Egyptian when he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew uh, servant and this conflict results in the murder of the Egyptian. Moses covers it up, and and the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that it is in uh, Moses's heart at this point in time to emancipate Israel. He wants to see Israel freed, and he's a forty-year-old man, and he's ambitious, and he thinks he can do this, and so he he kills this Egyptian man. But the next day, he sees two Hebrew people arguing, and he says, "Brothers, I mean, Moses knows who he is. He knows that he's not an Egyptian. He knows the the he know he understands his ethnicity, regardless of how he's been raised." He says, "Why are you fighting?" And they say, uh, "You know, what are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian?" And he says, "Oh man, he realizes that that Pharaoh that what he's done is well known, and that then that Pharaoh." Uh, will punish him. Uh, we don't know very much about Pharaoh's relationship with Moses up to this point, but Moses is convinced this will be his death, and so he flees out into the wilderness. We don't know how long he was a shepherd, but he eventually becomes a shepherd. He spends 40 years uh, with this man named Jethro, who's uh, called a priest of, of Midian. And, uh, and when we see him again, he's 80 years old, and he's watching sheep on the edge of the desert. So 40 years pass. He lives a whole lifetime here. And gone is the ambition to emancipate Israel. I mean, th th those, those dreams, those goals, are they're gone. He's a refugee who's made a life for himself, and, and uh, he's an 80-year-old guy watching sheep, which is not the most, um, not the most uh, high-regarded uh, profession. It's it's not a highly regarded situation. It's not very respectable, and you know, uh, not that there's anything wrong with watching sheep, but it's not a, a special thing. It's not befitting of his background and education. And he must have felt like, well, um, you know, this is that's that. You know, all of my dreams and my goals here are gone. And then one day, he's he's out there at night with the sheep, and he sees a a, a fire on the side of a mountain. And as he draws a little closer to it, he realizes that it's a bush that's burning from a long ways off but it's not being extinguished and it's and yet it's not spreading so it's a you know so what's fueling this fire it's not spreading all over the mountainside you know eating up the dried uh, vegetation there but but it's also not not uh, petering out which is what what you would expect and so as he draws near of course there's the voice of the lord saying you know take off your your sandals for you stand on on holy ground and and this is the encounter with god that he has where god tells him, no, you're going you're gonna to go back to Egypt, and this is what you're going to do. And he's very hesitant. He's very resistant. God sends him back anyway. Well, um, before, as he's traveling back to Egypt as, a, as an old man, very insecure about his, his station and his position here, to have this big confrontation with Pharaoh, with the plagues and everything, we're given this uh, summary here in Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Now look at what this says. This says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, See that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. Now listen, this is God's logic here. This is the message for Pharaoh. He says, Israel is my son. 
my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. Is uh, Israel a nation belonging to God? Yes, yes. But here in verse 22 of Exodus chapter 4, God describes Israel as his son, his firstborn son. And he says, So I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Um, Pharaoh has enslaved God's son. And God will now stand and free him um, and if Pharaoh will not let him go, which he will not, he will require Pharaoh's son. So even here in the reasoning, I mean, from, from a human perspective, Israel wants to be let go of Egypt because they are in hard bondage. Israel thinks, God, save us as a people. Save us as a nation. Right, But from God's perspective, he is not merely saving a nation of people. He is saving his son, Jesus, who is in the lineage of this people. He is saving a son, a firstborn son. And he's, he, we're told that explicitly in the text in Exodus chapter 4. This is not merely about freeing an enslaved people. This is about the promise of the man who will come from this people that's enslaved. This is about God's fulfillment to provide Shiloh, the one to whom the scepter belongs, to provide the one to whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham's offspring, the one who will crush the head of the serpent even as Satan wounds him at the cross. This is about Jesus and there, there, there's no mistaking this. This is about a man. This is about a son. This is about a person. In Psalm 89, we're told that the lineage of King David, you know, this future king from the tribe of Judah that will come, who we'll learn about in the weeks ahead, the lineage of King David is called the Son of God. We get that in the promise that uh, that God makes to David in, in uh, the book of Samuel. In Psalm chapter 2, it's God speaking to David, but he's clearly not talking to David the man. He's clearly talking to someone who will will come from David to an heir of David's throne. Listen to what God says in Psalm 2. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Now listen, David, although he might be called God's son, David never inherited the nations of the earth. He, you know, he, he never had ruled over an everlasting kingdom. There were boundaries. All the peoples of the earth did not bow down to David. All the peoples of the earth were not blessed in David. Uh, David is merely uh, receiving this promise as a forerunner of Jesus Christ, his heir from his lineage, the, the son of David, the prophesied Messiah uh, who will come. So again, Psalm chapter 2, God speaking to David, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is revelation type stuff here. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That's Jesus. Well, you know, this is God in the Old Testament telling all the kings of the earth, serve Yahweh 
And when this son comes, kiss Jesus, kiss the son, pledge fealty to him, pledge loyalty to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. So in Exodus chapter 4, we get this language of sonship. uh, And Israel is my son, and you will let him go or I will take your son. And then we get the plagues of Egypt. by, By the way, we don't have time to cover all the various plagues of Egypt, but they're not just random plagues. You need to understand God is judging the people of Egypt, but he is judging the gods of Egypt as well. You remember the story where Aaron throws down his rod and it becomes a snake and it swallows up the other snakes. And you're like, well, that's a, that's a weird story, right? Why? Why would that happen? Well, in ancient Egypt, the snake god was the ruler of the afterlife. And by the way, we have uh, archaeological depictions of him, historical engravings of him, and that this ancient snake god who was the ruler of souls in the afterlife, he had legs. He wasn't on his belly. He had, he, you know, he, he walked and he had legs. He had human legs, which reminds me of a Genesis chapter 3 serpent uh, before uh, God said to your belly, you shall go. It reminds me of a serpent and Genesis Genesis chapter 3, who were told and the prophets rebelled against God, wanting to become God himself. Well, Israel had a snake God who was not uh, a snake on its belly, who ruled the afterlife. And God is, is judging not merely the fake deities, not merely the idols of Egypt, but the spiritual forces of darkness behind that idolatry. And God turns the Nile to blood, and that's a that's a, a a work against Osiris, the god of the Nile, Egyptians' god of of life of the Nile, and the same thing they had a god of the earth, and God uh, turns the. Uh, the dust of the, the ground of the earth to, uh, to lice and they had a, a, a sun god and God causes darkness over the land. You know, we know the god Ra or Amon-Ra uh, who becomes, you know, a dominant deity in Egypt uh, in the centuries to follow and God shows glory over, over them. And so we see all of this and this is from Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. God explains what he's doing here. <coughs> God explains what he's doing in Genesis uh, or in Exodus 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. It's not just about Pharaoh. Against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. We read this in chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lambs. Uh, God is going to uh, strike the Egyptians by requiring the firstborn of every family. Uh, He's going to send his angel of death and the firstborn of every family will be slain. But he makes a provision for Israel to be spared from this judgment of death. Then he calls this a Passover, and he says, you'll, you'll each get a lamb, and you will kill the Passover lamb. Verse 22. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood in the basin and strike the lintel and doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. Um, in other words, you're going to take the blood of the lamb, and you're going to form a cross on the doorway of your house. You're going to put blood on the, on the top of the door, and on both posts, both sides of the door. You're going to form a, a cross with the blood of the Lamb on your doorway. And none of you shall go out of the house, out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood, 
the blood of this lamb on the lintel and on the doorposts, in the shape of a cross, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. Folks, Jesus was crucified during the Passover. You know, there's a reason God tells them you will observe this ordinance forever. Keep doing this because hundreds of years, 1,500 years later, Jesus was crucified as the Lamb of God, the man promised from Genesis 3, the man promised in Genesis 15 and 17, the man pictured at the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, the man promised in Genesis, 20, in Genesis 49 as Shiloh who would come to rule. Jesus is the son who was saved from Egypt uh, in Exodus chapter 4. Jesus is the Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12 who was slain. And because of His blood, the judgment of God passes over us. Um, and so we have the Passover and the institution of it. Now I want to take you to another passage. We know what happens. God strikes the firstborn of Egypt. They move out into the wilderness. And then they, they encounter God. Now listen to this. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that His fear may be upon you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. In other words, the people cross the Red Sea. God destroys the army of Pharaoh. They get out. And they, they venture to the mountain of God. And they get to the mountain of God and God gives them the Ten Commandments thundering from the mountain in Exodus chapter 20. And the people hear the voice of God and they see the thunderings and the lightning flashes and they hear a roaring sound of a trumpet up on this isolated mountain at night in the desert. And when they see all of this, they encounter a living God. They, they knew what it was to encounter deities. Egypt was full of deities. They knew what it was like to see a God, but they did not know what it was like to see the one true living God. And when they witness the, the Lord, when they hear the Lord, when they see the presence of the Lord in Exodus chapter 20, they tell Moses, Moses, you go talk to God and we will stand far off. <laughs> far off because if we draw near to this living God we will surely die and Moses says look God did not bring you here to kill you do not be afraid that God's going to destroy you here by his mere presence but God is doing this so that you will fear him and keep his commandments that you may not sin and then something remarkable happens it says in Exodus 24 after God continues with the law, in verse 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So this is a book of the covenant. The law of God is a covenant. It's, a, it's an agreement. It's a contract. You know what it's like to read a contract, right? You probably agree to a dozen contracts a year on the Internet where you just click the little checkbox and says, Yes, I agree to these terms, right? You know, that's what the law of God is. It's not just rules. It's not just morality. This is a contract. This is a covenant. And it says in Exodus 24-7, that God took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people and they said all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. They click the box. They accept the terms. It says in verse 8, And Moses took the blood 
from the sacrifices that they had offered. And he sprinkled it on the people and he says, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So understand what's happened here. We saw in Genesis how God walked a trail of blood to seal his one-sided covenant with Abraham. Abraham did not walk that trail of blood. That covenant, that contract that God made with Abraham that, that he would have offspring and that in his offspring all the families of the earth would be blessed, that was a one-sided contract. Abraham did not have to do anything to fulfill the obligations of that contract. And God signs that in blood by, by walking this trail of blood before Abraham. But here in Exodus chapter 24, this is a two-sided covenant. God gives them the law. And by the way, he promises them phenomenal blessings if they will keep this covenant. He tells them things like, for instance, there won't be a single miscarriage in all of, of the land among all of your peoples if you will keep this covenant. I will protect you miraculously in a way that no nation has ever been guarded by God. That's what he says here. And, and, and Moses reads the covenant, what the people are supposed to do, and which includes the Ten Commandments, but also other commands. You know, And, and the people say, look, everything that the Lord has said in this, we will do. We will do it. And so they are sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. This is because they have an obligation in this contract. They, they have agreed to keep this, this covenant. And then it says in, in uh, verse 9, Then Moses went up, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. And if you're reading this and you know anything about the Bible, you're like, what? They saw God? More than that, it says in verse 11, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, the 70 elders plus Aaron and his family and Moses, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, God did not lay his hand. In other words, in Exodus 24, the, the writer here is, is expecting that as you read these verses, you will object and say, wait, how did they see God and live? He's expecting that objection. And in verse 11, he says, yes, you're right. They saw the God of Israel and they did not die. It says in verse 11, so they saw God and they ate and drank. You say, how is that possible? I thought no one could see God. I don't know what they saw, but it says they saw God. Some manifestation of God. We're not given a full description except under his feet. There is this paved work of sapphire stone up there on the mountain. They saw and had fellowship with God. And you say, how? How can sinners have fellowship with God? And I'm going to suggest to you, it's only because of the brevity of time that had passed between the agreement of this covenant and the meal that takes place on the mountain. At this one singular moment in the history of Israel as a nation, they had made a covenant with God and to this point kept that covenant. <laughs> they had made a covenant with God and not broken it up there on that mountain. And so God allows them to have fellowship with Him. A holy God can have fellowship with a perfect people, with a covenant people, with people who are in an unbroken covenant with Him. If they had waited three weeks, they couldn't have gone up there and had this meal. They wouldn't have kept the covenant with God that long. In fact, we see what comes after this in Exodus 32, when they make a golden calf to worship. But because of the brevity that takes place for this brief moment in history, 
Israel is in covenant with God, an unbroken covenant with God, and they have fellowship with Him, which I think says something about God's desire to have fellowship with us. It also says something about our inability to keep covenants and to be faithful. You know, we say a, a husband is faithful if he doesn't go out and have a, an affair with his wife, and yet uh, that's a pretty low bar. Jesus says anyone who looks after another woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. Are you faithful to your wife? Are you faithful to your husband? Well, maybe by our standards. Maybe you haven't gone out and have an affair. Are you faithful by God's standards? No. Probably not. We're not faithful. Anyone who's in a marriage relationship understands this. How many times in a marriage relationship do you say something akin to, okay, honey, I didn't know that bothered you. I'll never do it again. Unless you die in the next couple of weeks, you're probably going to do it again. <laughs> or something similar to it. I mean, give us enough time and we will go back on our word. We'll make some mockery of what we've promised. We are not a faithful people. Moses delays up on the mountain. He doesn't come back for a while. They make this golden calf. And you could say, well, man, I, that's so... I would never do that. I would never make this golden calf. Well, you don't come from the idolatry of Egypt. <laughs> you could say you wouldn't make a golden calf. Don't tell me you would never return to any idols. Don't tell me you haven't been in a place in your Christian life or you haven't drifted away enough far enough from God to feel the appeal of the things of your former life, the things that once enslaved you, the things that you once worshipped, passionately gave yourself to. Don't tell me that. I wouldn't believe you. We are idolaters. We are people who worship things other than the one true living God. Israel expresses that. And they say of this golden calf, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. They break this covenant. Our, idol our idolatry is different, but we are by nature no more patient to wait upon the Lord than the Israelites. We are kept only by God's Spirit, only by God's love and devotion to us, are we kept from drifting back into idolatry. Now I want to just tell you one more story here from... Uh, the book of Exodus, and then we'll close with this. There's, you know, there, the, the, the Bible describes, you know, God describes to Israel at the end of their 40 years wandering in the wilderness, 10 times, he says, 10 times they have rebelled against me, 10 times they have rejected me. And most of those times, you know, you can read about, but there's one in particular that is just so unlike God. And it takes place in Numbers chapter 21. It's just a few verses. Let me read it to you. It says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. They said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now there was food, there was the bread that they're calling worthless here, and there was water or else they would all be dying because, um, you know, we don't survive without water. But, the, but, but I, at the same time, I feel sympathy towards the Israelites here. 
because they had been uh, going through this this wilderness experience for many many months. You know, it was two years from their exodus of Egypt into the edge of the Jordan River and the Promised Land. And I have children who I don't want to ride on a two-hour car ride with, let alone months and months wandering through the wilderness, and they're tired. And they just want to, they want this to be over with. And, they, and, the, and their human nature, again, is kicking in. And they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to just die like this in the wilderness? And I'm not making an excuse for the Israelites, but I, I can relate. This would be a miserable, difficult struggle period of time. It says in verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Well, that's strange. Why would God do that? Uh, verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now listen to this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And you say, what in the world is this? I mean, God tells Moses to make this image of a serpent and to lift it up on a pole. Um, later on, the people would make an idol of this, as we would expect. I mean, this sounds like a graven image. What is God doing uh, making this uh, serpent? I mean, think about the practicality of this. If you looked at the serpent, you would magic live. So you get bit by one of these snakes. You go to wherever Moses has the serpent pole erected. And you don't die. And then you go back to your camp. I mean, this is lots of people spread out over a big swath, a big stretch of land. And, and you know, you can imagine back and forth. Well, this person got bit. Take him to that pole. I don't know how it works. I don't know why it works, but if you go to that pole and you look at that pole, you won't die. And so back and forth and back and forth and God is driving them back and forth to look on. The, every time they're bitten by a snake, every time someone's bitten, they make this journey back to the, the pole lifted up with a serpent on it. And they look at it and they don't die. And they look at it and they don't die. And they look at it and they don't die. I mean, I don't think this was a 500-foot pole way up in the air to where you could just glance at it conveniently. You had to go to this thing. You had to look at it and receive healing from God. And people are like that. They didn't understand how it worked, but they understood it worked. And they didn't want to die. They didn't want their kids to die. They didn't want their families to die. So they did it over and over again. Why? What is God doing? On John chapter 3, you might remember John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You know John 3.16? But do you know John 3.14 and 15? It says John 3, the two verses before John 3.16. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. He's talking about Moses lifting up this pole, this bronze snake for the people to look at in the wilderness. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The people looked at the serpent and they didn't perish. 
Jesus was lifted up on a cross, and all those who look by faith to Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. The serpent is a symbol of rebellion. It's a symbol of God's judgment. It's a symbol of sin. And I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God made Jesus the object of His wrath when He lifted Him up so that we could become the object of His love. And it's this context here where Jesus tells Nicodemus, listen, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. And then John 3.16 is an explanation of Numbers 21. Jesus says, For the reason Moses lifted that serpent up, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And at the cross, the serpent, the serpent is being destroyed as the Son of Man is lifted up. Sin is being dealt with as the Son of Man is lifted up. And all those who look to Jesus Christ by faith will live. I don't know you today. I don't know where you come from. I don't know where you're at in life. Maybe you are already a Christian, but you have wandered away from the cross. And I would call you once again to leave the tents of Israel and to go for healing to the cross and to see the Son of God lifted up for your sin and to commit yourself once again to the man Jesus Christ. All those who look to Him in faith will be saved. This is what Moses is doing in the wilderness. It's the man of Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, crushing the head of the serpent even as he's wounded at the crucifixion. I hope you see the imagery here and hope you haven't been bored to tears as we've gone through this today. I know I'm under the weather. I'm not, I'm, my voice is not normal. My energy is not normal and this has been long. I understand. But this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Jesus, the Messiah, came to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am chief, and I would raise my hand with him, I am a sinner. I deserve the death of, of the judgment of God. I deserve the judgment of Adam and Eve. I deserve separation from God. I deserve eternity under his wrath. And yet, if I look to Jesus at the cross, the Son of Man lifted up, my sin on his shoulder, Isaiah 53, him wounded for our transgressions. I may have eternal life with God. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I don't know who's listening to this, where they're at, spiritually, where they're at physically, but I pray that your word will not return to you void and that in seeing the imagery of your son Jesus Christ in Genesis and Exodus, we will look to the cross and see not just a failed Messiah executed by a Roman prelate, but when we look to the cross, we will see the prophesied man, 
the King of Kings, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, slain like a Passover lamb, his blood on the doorpost and the lintel, so that your judgment may pass over us and we may have eternal life with him. Thank you for your love and work in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.